Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, we're taking care of business today. Hey, Dan Miller here for this edition of 48 Days Online Radio. We have a lot of questions from people this week, and I'm going to get right into those. Here's some of the things we're going to be covering today. Should I take a new job if I'm working to develop my own business? Dan, what benefits do you reap by dealing with contractors versus employees? How do I find a nonprofit to fund my social entrepreneurial proposal? Interesting question. We're going to unpack that one in a little bit. Gentleman says, I lost company funds and a failed investment. Now they're coming after me personally. Someone says, Dan, I'm struggling with a great deal of depression, feeling of isolation, loneliness, paranoia, fear, anxiety, debilitating fatigue, and sleeplessness. Can I find work that removes all of these? Okay, get ready for that. If work is solving every issue you have in your life, you're putting too much, too many expectations on work. And as much as I think work is very important, obviously, it's simply one tool for a successful life. So we'll be looking at that, how to balance that, how to get from work what we should get from work, but how to have success in other areas of our lives as well. You know, I did a radio interview last late last night, and in that, there was a question uh, from a caller that essentially was this. Guy was in a job that he really doesn't like, so he kind of hangs out, he slacks, he hides out, so he doesn't really have to do much because the company's not paying him enough anyway. And the question was, in light of today's economy, what are the best sources for him? You know, what are the, what's the best path for him to get into work that is really meaningful and that pays really well? Well, the issue there is that the guy is developing patterns that he's going to take with him. If somebody is hanging out, stick, hanging back in a job, not doing much because the company's not paying them much, that says nothing about the economy, the recession, or the job. It says a whole lot about that person. That person is developing very negative, self-defeating patterns, and I would not hire a person like that in a million years. I mean, it's not that the job is going to fix everything. The problem is the person. You know, when I talk to somebody who's, you know, gotten fired five times in two years, and they think, well, gee, the economy is really bad. Uh, Let's take a fresh look at this. When we look at what is the common denominator in all of these situations, it's not the economy, it's not different companies or even one industry. It's you, the individual. So, Take personal responsibility for that. Now, good or bad, you know, we, we take those habits with us. I met with a couple. This has been years ago now. But they, they came in. Wife was very distraught because the husband was not spending time fulfilling responsibilities at home with her or with their daughters. He was just, you know, too busy. And he was like, dude, you know, you know how important it is to build a business. I'm trying to build a business. And obviously, it takes a lot of time. I can't do everything, so I'm building my business. When things get better, then I will reward the family by spending more time with them. Three years later, I met with them again. They came back in. She says, he's not spending any time with us, blah, blah, blah. 
he had in that year prior to June, which is when we were meeting, prior to June, he had made $300 million net profit in his business. Money was no longer an issue. He could stop and never work again. His comments then were, well, gee, Dan, you know how tough it is to keep a business going. Obviously, I got to keep this going. I can't just walk away from it. See, it doesn't matter if it's good or bad, the top of the heap or the bottom of the heap. We tend to take personal habits with us. So just be aware that we are developing the habits that define us. We, we don't just get in the right work and then all of a sudden everything is wonderful. We get in the right work as a result of developing personally, developing great work habits, great personal characteristics over a long period of time. And all of a sudden, yeah, guess what? Then we are rewarded with work that matters, work that's fulfilling and profitable. It's a culmination of all those things. It's not some magic luck or leap of faith that all of a sudden things are different because now finally we're out of work that we hate. You know, when I hear somebody describe, you know, job after job after job that they hate, I mean, it's easy for me to understand it has very little to do with those jobs. A person who hates any job is probably going to hate the next one. It has more to do with the person than it does the work. Well, enough of that. I Last night, I kind of went off on that because uh, the, I thought the guy was taking a very irresponsible path and, again, not accepting personal responsibility for where he was and where his life was going. Well, here's a quote for the day. It comes from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who says, If a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the host of heaven and earth will pause to say, Here lived a great street sweeper who did his job. You know, I love that because there can be common things. I mean, the guy who delivers our mail is a a really fun guy. I mean, he looks for excuses to come back off the road here into the sanctuary to deliver things to us and does it gladly if something's a little too big to fit in the mailbox. But, you know, he, he obviously enjoys what he's doing and does a great job doing that. There's honor in doing that. The guys who mow our yard, I know I've talked about that before. You know, do more. Our yard, golly, they do it with excellence. They joke among each other. They take little breaks and mess around. And, of course, I don't care because they aren't paid by the hour with me. They're paid for the the total job. But it's obvious they enjoy their work. And we ought to be examples of doing the same. Well, let me jump into the questions here. Jonathan says, I'm starting an animation company creating educational science episodes for homeschooled families. I'm working on it on the side with no budget. Should I market and distribute the product myself, in which I will have to take out loans, or try to sell the idea to a distribution company? Or do you have a better idea on how to market? Well, Jonathan, you're fortunate in that your target audience is very easy to find. I mean, homeschooled families, there are certain books that they get, there are certain magazines that they read, there are certain conferences and conventions that they go to. So they're a very easy group to identify. So it's not real challenging to distribute to that group. And with what you're doing, if you're creating the product already, I don't think distribution is that major of an issue for you. You know, you may want to take out a couple little ads in magazines that they read. I mean, look at 
my buddy Jim Hodges. Jim Hodges creates audio products that he markets exclusively to homeschooled families. You can find him at jimhodgesaudiobooks.com. Hodges is H-O-D-G-E-S. So it's jimhodgesaudiobooks.com. Jim goes to about 10 or 12 major homeschool conferences every year. That's how he sells his product. That's the best way to do it. I don't know of a better distribution system than what he does, but he just does it personally. It's extremely profitable for him to do that. I would encourage you to do the same. I would encourage you to market and distribute your own product until you're making $100,000 a year. Then you'll be in a better position to negotiate with distribution companies. Devin says, Dan, I love your show. Listen to it religiously every week. Even have my own personal business metro hooked on it as well. Listen to it religiously. Now, that does that mean that you listen to this podcast instead of going to church? Not sure what it means to listen religiously. Anyway, thanks for the compliment. I'm an artist, graphic designer, currently work for a large advertising agency in the South. Let me jump through some of this. It's a rather lengthy email here. On the side, I've been working on a comic book idea that I hope will support my wife and me within the next couple of years. Um, there's an Here's, here's the kicker. Okay, he wants to develop a comic book idea and turn that into full-time income. He says, here's the kicker. There's an opening at a large corporation here in town. I'm ready for something new, but wonder if taking this new job with much higher responsibility will cause me to risk ever really getting the comic book finished and off the ground. Do I go after a job that puts me back into design, gives me the opportunity to be a leader, and will likely increase my pay by at least a third more than I'm making now? Or do I stay at my current job and work that much harder on the web comic to make to try to make my current job the last day job I ever have? What would you do if you were in my shoes? Could I have the best of both worlds? Well, Devin, yeah, great position to be in. You've got obviously good options, a good job now, prospects of a better job if you want that, and also the prospects of developing your own comic book business into something that you do full time. Here's how you have to look at this. Taking a new job is going to require somewhat of a learning curve, even if you know the area of expertise well. So even if it's a design job and that's what you're doing now, it still is going to take time to learn the corporate culture. I mean, those kind of things just take time. I think that if you take a new job with a company, you ought to be emotionally prepared to spend two to three years there. Now, does that always happen? No, obviously doesn't always happen. But I think you ought to, in your mind, be ready to make a commitment of two or three years. So the question then is, if you want to be full time with your comic book business in six months, then by all means, do not take a new job. Two to three years ought to be kind of the benchmark that we're using here. If you think that you're going to ramp up your comic book business before 24 months pass, then I would encourage you not to take the new job. In fairness to the company and in also fairness to yourself, because taking a new job again, even if it's in an area of expertise that you know well, is going to require more time, just that inevitable learning curve. Even, even if it is just, you know, learning the company, the ins and outs and so on. So it will slow down the development of your current business, your side business, if you take another job. So if you think that you can be full time 
within 18 to 24 months, I'd say just stay put with where you are, focus on really ramping up your side business, and then make it like you say, the job that you have currently, the last day job that you ever have. Rob says, Dan, what benefits do you reap by dealing with contractors versus employees? I'm wondering for myself, if I'm to hire a contractor, how would I benefit and also for myself as a contractor? What points do I sell to a client to help convince them that hiring me as a contractor is better than hiring an employee? Well, the advantages for an employer are very obvious. Um, and I, I use independent contractors, nothing but. I mean, so they have no set hours, only results. They have no guarantee for a certain number of hours. So as an employer, that w- that benefits me. I don't guarantee somebody you're going to have 20 hours here or 30 or 40. No. You know, this week it may be 20. Next week it may be five. It's based on what you're producing for me. So as an employer, you can increase or decrease both the hours and the number of people based on your current workflow profitability. I mean, that's a tremendous advantage for an employer. I have people who do uh, design work. I've got a couple major projects right now and have a, a guy working on that. He He's amazing at putting together even my book proposals. I have design work done on those. So they look absolutely stellar at doing things with them that I could certainly not do. Um, you know, I create every word of the content, but just making it look nice. That's a design project. Joanne and I have a little book that we're working on that we want to have finished prior to going to the cruise, the No More Mondays cruise. And we have the same designer is working on that. That's a project that he's going to work on next week. Pulling that together, it'll involve photographs and some things that we can put in there sideways or tilt it a little bit and bring in lots of cool things that only a designer could do. But, you know, he's an independent contractor. Uh, he's certainly not an employee. This month, we're going to have a whole lot of work for him. Next month, I may not have anything. I mean, the web work that we have done, independent contractor, social media consulting, independent contracting, bookkeeping, product fulfillment that we do, newsletter production, financial planning, business management. I mean, everybody that I have in those positions are independent contractors. This is January. We're getting ready next week to do 1099s, the reporting for all of those people that do work for me. And last year, I think we had, I think we had like 33. So there's a significant number of people, but none of them are employees. I have zero employees. I just think it's a, a healthier way to, for me to structure from my vantage point. Now, what are the advantages for the independent contractors? Golly, I mean, if I know somebody that's really great in design, which I do, I send him every request I get where somebody says, gee, who could I get to design this? Rather than thinking, well, gee, I've got a great guy who works for me, but I pay him for 40 hours a week, so you can't have him. No, I send tons of business to them. Um, Missy, who did our web design, she did a beautiful design. I mean, beautiful work all the way through from start to finish. Well, then we started having tons of requests, inquiries coming in. Who did your websites? And I sent them directly to her. She is making more money than she ever dreamed in her life because of that. I'm happy for her. She still does what I need done, but she's able to make exponential increases in her income because she is an independent contractor. So you can position yourself to do that. I think it's a win-win for everybody. Now, there's some 
caveats there. I mean, if you require somebody to be in at your office at eight o'clock in the morning and don't leave your seat until five and they use your computers and they do exactly what you tell them with your systems, they're not an independent contractor. They're an employee and the IRS will nail you to the wall if they discover you're using people like that and you're trying to call them independent contractors. So you really do have to give them freedom and look at results, not systems that you implement. Nate says, I recently sent a social entrepreneurial proposal to World Vision. They called my plan fascinating, but said they couldn't implement it. They told me that Habitat for Humanity might. I now plan to approach both Habitat and Christian philanthropists who are not bound by the same rules of fund allocation. How do I identify appropriate people to approach? Well, Nate, people in nonprofits are looking for funds themselves and struggling to make ends meet. They aren't really good sources of fund allocation. Now, you may think, well, gee, they have lots of money there, and so they're going to fund this project. Now, do they do that? Yes, but I would consider that a poor track to go on if I needed funding for something to go to a nonprofit and expect them to use some of their meager funds to do it. So I think you're going to need to find outside investors or philanthropists to, or bootstrap your idea. Now, here's where your terms raise some red flags. A social entrepreneurship implies that we are outside of the nonprofit arena already. This is not something that's going to require people to just donate or give money or fund in some you know, nonprofit way. A social entrepreneurship implies that we have a business model here. Yes, we want it to be godly, humanitarian, make the world a better place, but we have a method in place to have it be self-sustaining. It creates its own funding. That's the true definition of an, a social entrepreneurship. You know, if it doesn't create its own, uh, by definition, it needs to fund itself. If you don't have a way for it to do that, it's really not a social entrepreneurship. It's just something that falls under the old traditional nonprofit. Now, I don't know what your idea is, but again, if you really see it as a social entrepreneurship, it ought to fund itself. I mean, look at examples like Kiva, K-I-V-A dot com. I mean, you can go in there and you make little contributions to help, you know, Joe in Peru start up his auto mechanic business and he needs $350 to do that. So I may give him $50 for that cause. Now the Kiva, the organization takes 5% of all the money transferring in there for their overhead. Well, they go through millions and millions of dollars every year. And so it's well-funded, but it's funded by the operations of that social entrepreneurship rather than just depending on outside people to fund them because they're a worthy organization. I mean, Pura Vida Coffee. I mean, there's lots of organizations out there that are true social entrepreneurships where they may pay the farmers fair trade prices for their coffee. They promote in their stores or through the products that they're selling that it's fair trade. But there's a profit model there that allows the organization to take care of itself rather than just going to big organizations or individuals and saying, hey, we're trying to help these poor farmers give money to us. I'm a big believer in social entrepreneurship, but I think you can take an idea pretty much anything that you can come up with and turn it into a social entrepreneurship instead of trying just to be another nonprofit where then you have to be dependent on the largesse and generosity of other people. 
Okay, this one says, Dear Dan, I won't give the guy's name. This is a tough situation. I'm going to give you just the highlights here. I just completed a 20-year food career that was a family business. My partner and brother tried to use the funds for his personal growth and well-being while I did the work to produce the funds. Tried to invest some of the funds through a shareholder loan. The funds were invested with a bad stockbroker and stock circumstances in which the money was lost. Okay, so we had company funds. Uh, this gentleman, right in the letter here, you had the authority to invest the funds. You invested it, and along with lots of other people, you may have been in Bertie Madoff's downline or something such, and the money is now gone. Due to the loss, my business partner is finding pleasure in pursuing me for the funds and making my life miserable. Can you help me overcome this situation and find a rewarding, purposeful career? And he gives me phone number and so on. Now, this is a painful situation, and that's the essence of the details. I have to encourage you to learn from this painful experience. Even with a family business, it's critical that duties and expectations are clearly laid out. Now, if this is a corporation, and certainly it sounds like it was big enough that it was, guidelines should be pretty clearly identified in there. And if you had the authority to invest the company funds, then the the, the results are a company result, not a personal one. It it, it sounds like if you completed a 20-year career there, it sounds like you've already moved on. And it sounds like that's probably a good choice here. There should be clear guidelines in place for how the financial responsibilities of the previous company are to be handled. So if there are debts of the previous company, if it was a corporation, they ought to be handled by the corporation, not you personally. If money was lost in company funds that were invested in something that went sour, again, it's sad and there may be some anger and bitterness and resentment, but just because you were brothers or had family relationships doesn't mean that it's more your responsibility. It was still under the umbrella of a company. You need to draw a line in the sand, see that as a past chapter of your life, recognize the relationships are forever damaged, and move on into the next section of your life. Now, that may sound kind of cold, but there are some things that you just can't go back and undo. Partnerships, are extremely challenging. You never hear me encourage partnerships here in this program. Partnerships are complicated even more if those involve family relationships. It's very, very tough. Now, you may wonder if I'm talking on both sides of my mouth because you hear me talk about my daughter, my son-in-law, my other son, you know, involved in the business here. But again, I just talked about in a previous question here that those people are all independent contractors. None of those are partners in this business. The only people who are members of the corporation 48 Days are Joanne Miller and her husband, Dan. That's it. It's ours, 100%. That's never been diluted with partnerships with other people, even family members. Now, the family members can be actively involved in the business, and they profit greatly from what the business does. We structure it so that there's no limit. There's no ceiling on what they can do. But then the counterpart is, if the company gets in trouble and has debts and obligations, and those are the companies, not theirs individually. 
Now, they can benefit from making contributions to what we're doing here, and I'm delighted when that happens. But it's very, very clear that ultimately this is my company. We don't make that complicated. So over Thanksgiving turkey, we're talking about the drop in profitability or the drop in share value because I've locked them into corporate ownership. That's a very, well, that's a, that's a big issue and certainly not one we can address appropriately here. Uh, but it's, um, it's an issue I encourage you to be careful about. Partnerships, be careful about bringing family members in to the business. Yes, there are ways you can structure it so everybody can hold their head high at the end of the day, no matter what happens, and go on. But in this case, it sounds like they're damaged relationships, a lot of pain there, but you need to draw that line in the sand and move on. Raven says, Dan, I have a two-year plan to become a fashion designer and writer. I'm working on my sewing and starting a blog, uh, which is ravenburns, B-U-R-N-E-S dot com. In the meantime, I have been applying for retail jobs, etc. Should I look for just any job while I hone my skills, or should I try to start some type of business during the two years? Well, Raven, a short question. I appreciate the, the details you've given us here, but you say you have a two-year plan to become a fashion designer and writer. Now, that sounds to me like that's your business. Uh, can you get just a job to help you while you're ramping that up? Sure. But should you start another business? No, I would say no, don't do that. See, for, the, uh, for a couple reasons, you, you should never start a business just to make money. It takes way too much energy and effort. You know, it, it better be something that you really love, something you're passionate about. So if you're if fashion design and writing are your passions, then focus on those. Make that your business focus and don't dilute your energy by trying to develop those and start another business. Okay, did I cover all that? I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a job, and you know, you can get a job, and it doesn't have to be your dream job or your dream career. You recognize that it's a reasonable vehicle to help you transition into having your own business. Nothing wrong with that. Fully supportive of that. I know lots of companies that are supportive of that. They recognize you're there. You're giving them reasonable value. They're giving you a paycheck, and you are developing your own business. That's there's nothing secretive or misrepresentative about that in any way. But to try to be developing your own career. Now, the only caveat to this would be if you say that you want to be a fashion designer and writer and you simply want to get a job when you feel like you're prepared to do that. I can't quite imagine that that would be the direction that you're going. But if you are doing that, then there may be some merit for starting another business. But again, whatever business you start, better be a full representation of your passion. Otherwise, don't do it. Next question here comes from Jeff. Now, this is lengthy, but I'm going to give you some kind of lengthy sections here because it lays out such a common challenge. Dan, I'm a 38-year-old professional. I was in law enforcement for a number of years. This was the only job that I always wanted to do as a kid, and I absolutely loved it. I was one of those people, as they say, that woke up every day anticipating, exciting to go to, excited to go to work. However, after approximately three or more years, a small voice told me it was time to go do something else, even though I still like my work. Now, he talks about did something else, realized that probably wasn't a good choice, found myself bedridden for two months, the herniated disc in my lower back. 
in physical therapy for three months, eventually needing back surgery to correct the problem. After recuperating, I realized that my career had eventually taken its toll on me. I was struggling with a great deal of depression, feeling of isolation, loneliness, very poor treatment by superiors, paranoia, fear, anxiety, debilitating fatigue, sleeplessness, loss of control of daily situations along with my personal life. Now, this gentleman goes through here, and I this is a long, painful um, description of not being able to find something you're passionate about. You describe working with, uh, taking many personality, career, interest, skills, profiles, working with a job coach, psychologist, psychiatrist, currently seeing a Christian psychologist to try to help me narrow down some decisions. However, now this is an interesting part. However, when I brought out that I wanted to find a job career that I was passionate about, he stated that I should not try to look for that. This is the Christian psychologist. He said that my view of work was too high and would possibly keep me in a feeling of dissatisfaction. He said that I should only look for a career that works for me, something I'm good at and can earn a good living at. He said that the only people in this world that have jobs and approach their careers with something to be passionate about uh, represents about 2% of this world. I don't fully believe that, but I'm finding myself surrendering to this thought. I don't know what else I could do and rediscover the original love and passion that I once found in my former career. The thought of returning depresses me, knowing what kind of lifestyle it requires and the mental, emotional, and physical stress, health issues that the job naturally brings about. Any advice or direction for me? Yes. Goodness. Let's recap a little bit. When you say that you were struggling with depression, isolation, loneliness, paranoia, fear, anxiety, debilitating fatigue, sleeplessness, and so on and so forth. That's a very discouraging list. And those things coming from a job or thinking that those things are going to be removed by the right job, neither of those is appropriate framing of what work is. I mean, please hear me on this. Work is one tool for a successful life. But it's the, if it's the only thing that defines who we are, the only thing we do that has value, we're very vulnerable because work is going to change. The changes are inevitable. They're relentless. We can't determine. We can't choose. Is my work going to change? Trust me, it's going to change. But there ought to be things in our lives that give us a sense of meaning, fulfillment, and purpose outside of our work so that our life continues even if the job career or business does not. So if you go from losing a job, you know, into depression, anxiety, fear, and so on, then the question becomes, wow, what about those other pillars in your life that should be giving you success, you know, in those very areas? What are you doing in your life, in your family life? See, if these things happen as a result of the wrong job or loss of job, we know the job has way too much importance. Now, again, you may find it strange to hear me, Dan Miller, who writes about nothing but the importance of work that matters, work that you love, saying, geez, if work's too important, you, you tip the scale here. But I really do believe this. I mean, I don't live that out in my own life. The work that I do is one tool for what I consider a successful life. I mean, the time I spend with my kids and my grandkids and the time I spend out, you know, on my tractor or reading or 
carving wood or studying trees. One of my goals for this year is to become more knowledgeable about the trees, both on our property and just trees in general. I, I need, I just want to be more knowledgeable about that. Well, that I'm not going to write a book about that. I'm not going to address that in speeches that I give, but it's something that I'm doing for personal growth and benefit. Hey, this is John Tesh, host of Intelligence for Your Life, and you're listening to my good buddy, Dan Miller. You know, finding your purpose and passion is the first step to living out intelligence in your own life. 48 days can show you the way. Now back to Dan. Well, thank you, John, for that little interlude. And you can certainly guess why I have those to throw in once in a while, because it's a good way to get a good cough out. I was choking, and rather than just choking here or just going blank, bring in a little clip from my old buddy, John Tesh. Now, back to our issue at hand here. What are you doing in your family life, socially? What are you doing to keep your spiritual life full of vitality and energy? Are you doing things to make you as physically sharp as possible? If you're doing those things, then work plays a different role. It should complement the life you're living, but not be the only thing that defines your life. Okay, we've got to frame it. Again, this this may seem like a dicey kind of thing where you find the right balance there. Yes, it ought to be fulfilling. It ought to be something you absolutely are thrilled about doing, the work that you're doing. But if in the absence of that, your life stops, then we know that work was probably playing a role unlike what it should be playing. Now, I say that, and again, trust me, if something happened that tomorrow I could no longer be an author, coach, and speaker, I would not go into a deep depression. I really would. Now, I can't imagine what would take those things away from me, but if they were taken away, um, I could tomorrow come up with four or five other ideas for things that I could do things that I would really enjoy doing, things that are totally unrelated to this. I mean, every time I pass, there's a little, there's a, well, there's a pretty sizable lot right at the entrance to the freeway from the road that comes out from our house where 96 meets I-65. There's an enormous place there that used to be a car dealership and now it's empty. Every time I go back pie there, you know, my heart starts racing a little faster. I think, oh my gosh, I'd love to have that. And just front, you know, 20, 30 cars out there. Used cars have people coming in, helping them solve, you know, their needs in cars. I mean, I'd love that. I could do that in a heartbeat. It's not very directly related to what I'm doing now. But that's something I could see myself doing and enjoying. I mean, there's not one thing and one thing only that I could enjoy doing and be fulfilled in doing doing that. I think it's uh, I think it's dangerous to assume that there's one right thing, there's only one thing you could possibly do. Even if we take general categories, I mean if you're a pastor or if you're a physician or if you're an attorney, I mean even in those we ought to be able to make a list of 40 different things that you could do that would embrace your affinity for that line of work, but would not require you, as an example, if you are drawn to being a pastor, you're drawn to ministry. I mean, you may never be in a pulpit standing in front of a crowd of people on Sunday mornings, but there are tons of things you could do as someone who has a desire to be actively involved in ministry. 
know, you could, you, you could obviously write books or you could speak, you could go to conferences, you could set up conferences and bring other people in. You could do workshops and seminars. You could create audio products. You could do podcasts. You could create a social networking site. I mean, we could go on and on and on just with one idea like that, the things you could do that would be different. So don't think that if you lost your work or something happened to your business, that it took away the one thing that would be fulfilling work for you. I just don't believe that's the way it works. Davis asked, Dan, he says, I enjoy listening to your podcast, reading your weekly newsletter. There are a couple of things I've heard you talk about that I would like to follow up on. First, I've heard you describe how you make notes when you're reading a book. It sounds like the method you use creates easy reference for future referral from the books. Can you talk about that again? Sure. I'll tell you real quickly what I do. When I read books, I have in my hand a highlighter and I use the highlighters that have the built-in post-it notes. Now, they're very small. They're just narrow little strips, but they pull out. I've never exhausted one. It seems to be unending in there. But so if I come to page 32 and there's a paragraph that really resonates with me, I highlight that. And then I tear out a little post-it note and put it at the top of the page. When I put that back in my bookshelf, I've already created a special connection in my brain by highlighting it and putting the note there. When I put that back in my shelf, I can walk away and three years later, I can think, now let's see, you know, I was reading about, you know, what Michelangelo did, how he thought when he looked at a piece of stone. Well, I can go walk right up to a book on my shelf and think, you know, it was in this book and boom, in 30 seconds, I can find the place that talked about that because it's created that connection in my brain. I highlight it, I put it on my shelf and I can go reference those very quickly. That's why I have not shifted totally to electronic books. I know there are ways to highlight those as well, but it's just, it, it's very comfortable for me to be able to physically see the books that I've read and to pull it off the shelf and see the places where I've notated those things that I thought were important the first time I went through. I have done things where I've read a book and I used blue post-it notes. And then three years later, I read the same book again, which I often do. And I may use yellow post-it notes that time. So I designate at different times in my life, the things that I really saw as being important that resonated with me. Secondly, Davis says, I know you have a weekly group that you meet with. Can you describe how the group was formed? Share some of the group dynamics. I've heard you talk recently about this. I would like to learn more. For example, how many people are in the group? Are the members in the same industry or varied? Do you have a purpose like a Bible study or accountability group? Is there a designated leader? Or do you alternate? How long do you meet? How do you maximize your time together? Do you set out agenda in advance or have homework assignments? I'm in discussion with some friends about creating such a group, so I wanted to conduct some due diligence. Any insights would be appreciated. Well, Davis, your timing is impeccable because this morning, the day that I am recording this in January, what is this, the 12th, we had this discussion in the group about these very things. The group was started approximately 10 years ago, pretty, pretty exactly 10 years ago. Ron Doyle, um, who's been a longtime friend of mine, Dave Ramsey, who's been a longtime friend of mine, and I, the three of us decided to start this group, and we laid out some just general overview guidelines. We discussed today, 10 years later into this group, are we still, do we still have the same kind of goals? What, why do we meet? Why do we invest the time that we meet every week in this? 
So we defined some things and clarified some things and, and pretty much confirmed what we have perhaps evolved into, but, but really more realistically, what we designed originally, what we wanted this group to be. So let me just, I'll go through a couple of those things. Let me tell you real quickly, too, you can get that overview that we put together 10 years ago. You can access that. Uh, maybe I could make it easier, but I'll tell you how to get it. If you go to 48days.net, click on the resources tab, and then go to links from podcast. Because this is such a common question that comes up. I do have it on there. I've got the, what you want to look for is the Eagle purpose statement. You can go right there and you can open up the exactly the thing we looked at this morning and exactly the thing that Dave, Ron, and I put together 10 years ago as guidelines for this group. So 48days.net, resources, links from podcasts, scroll down and you're going to find it in there in one of the previous podcasts, Eagle purpose statement. Just briefly, there are 12 guys in there. We keep it at that. The only way somebody new can come in is if somebody chooses to leave. We expect a one-year commitment. In December, everybody has an opportunity to re-enlist if they want to or say they want to move on. Rarely has anybody ever moved on unless they've moved out of the area. We had a gentleman who was in there, a great part of the group. He is now the president of a university in Michigan. So he's not in there because he moved out of state. But uh, normally people stay in there. Again, it's rare for somebody to just decide they want to move on. It is not a Bible study. It is not an accountability group. We clarified that this morning. Um, We use books primarily as our guide for what we go through. Anybody in the group can offer, I read this great book. I mean, we are very much peers and colleagues in this group. So anybody can volunteer that they read a book, then it becomes that person's responsibility to guide us through a discussion of that. There's no hierarchy. There's nobody who is the top of the pole or the bottom of the pole. We're all equal in there. We all are involved in very diverse things. There's no commonality in terms of the kind of businesses that we're involved in at all. I like the diversity. Uh, We meet together every Wednesday morning from seven o'clock to eight 30. We start at seven, we stop at 8.30. There's not sloppiness. Uh, We expect uh, 80% attendance. If somebody, all of us travel, have other commitments, but if anybody cannot commit to being there at least 80% of the time, then we think they do need to withdraw from membership of that group. We don't have any membership fees. There's nothing formal. You know, we don't pierce our friend gears and share blood or anything like that. It's just a group of guys that get together, but it's been a, a real lifeline for a lot of us. And there was a lot of sharing this morning about the value of that group. I consider it to be the highlights, one of the highlights of my week to go in there. And there are often situations when any of us uh, during the course of the week ha- are confronted with a situation and we ask ourselves, you know, what would the other guys in the Eagles group do? Now, there's a lot of response if there's a tragedy in somebody's family, if there's a particular need. I mean, there's a response to that. So there's a lot of sharing, but it's done very um, informally. There aren't official guidelines. We are very unstructured in that regard. 
Great question. I hope that um, I, I encourage everybody to do that. Of course, I get, you know, 10 requests a week. Can I be in your group? No, you can't. But I'd be delighted to show you how we did this. And I encourage you to go start your own. And a lot of people have done that. I run into people all the time that say, hey, I started my own Eagles group or you can call it anything you want. But I started my own group where we meet and we do kind of the things that you guys do together on Wednesday morning. And I'm honored and thrilled to have that happen. Matt says, I'm a trainer for the industrial sector, safety, hazmat, environmental. I would like to develop a workbook in my training sessions and sell it on the Internet. The workbook would include presentations, outlines, quizzes, hands-on exercises, as well as training tips, preparation suggestions. Could you suggest some resources on how to put together a professional workbook? Yes, what I would do is find examples and use them as models. I mean, that's exactly what I've always done. I used an old program, golly, it was through Carlson Learning Center. I forget what the exact name was, but anyway, out of Minneapolis, they've changed the name now to Inscape, but it it was a program called Adventures and Attitudes. I facilitated that for several years. I did that because I had uh, gone through the Dale Carnegie program and saw their materials, and then I saw Adventures and Attitudes, and it was similar, and then I developed The materials that I now do, the 48 Days to the Work You Love, is very much along the same lines as what those two programs are. I just found things that I thought were well done and modeled after those. Recently, I went over to North Carolina, spent a day uh, with Steve Grissom, who heads up a company called Church Initiatives. They produce the materials. You drive past churches and you see divorce care, grief share those kind of programs. He produces that kind of material. I went over there and spent a day and just picked his brain. He's very open, just very gracious about sharing his ideas. And I looked at the materials that they have. They're in over 12,000 churches. I brought his materials back here and I have them laying open on my desk as I am doing a revision of the 48 Days to the Work You Love workbook that we're launching in February in churches. I mean, I just, I I very unashamedly find things that I think are done well and model after those. And I encourage you to do the same thing with your industrial manual that you're putting together. Wes says, "Uh, Dan, I love your show. You're always saying you're never too old to start doing what you love. But what about too young? I'm 27 years old. I'm a full-time youth minister, but I'd love to write and work from home. I've started a website radicallychristian.com. But should I wait a few years before I try to grow a business? (laughs) Well, let's ask Mark Zuckerberg if you should wait. You know, Mark is now the ripe old age of what, 26. He started Facebook. He was Time Magazine Person of the Year for 2010. Now think about that. A 26-year-old kid, Person of the Year? He's reportedly turned down $6 billion for his little company. No, you're never too young. You you really aren't. However, what you're able to do well will change over time. I mean, I could not have been a credible life coach and author at 27 years old. In those years, golly, I had a car lot. I had a motorhome rental business, then an auto accessories business. Then I had a health and fitness center. I mean, all of those were part of the ongoing preparation for what I do today. So you're never too young to do something, but just recognize what you're able and in a position to do well at 27 is going to be different from what you're able to do when you're 45. Just enjoy the journey. I mean, 
value that process. Don't try to do, you know, what Abraham Lincoln was doing when he was 60 years old. You know, geez, I, I don't Perhaps he wasn't around that long. I pulled that out as a bad example, but don't, you know, don't try to do what somebody who's invested 30 years in developing has done, but recognize there's not a whole lot of limitation on what you can do as a 27 year old in today's environment. Let me go with one more question here. Got a bunch of them, man. Let me go with one. Paul says, Dan, my wife has a growing cleaning business. We're in our first pregnancy and don't know what to do with my wife's business. We need the income, but she will not be able to clean during pregnancy. Any creative ideas on how to keep our business growing, but without my wife doing physical labor? Thanks, Dan. Paul, yes. Get a couple of independent contractors to do the work. See, the most valuable part of running a cleaning business is being able to market and sell the services. You can get lots of people to do the actual work. So if you have the ability to get the jobs, keep focusing on that. Your wife may be able to continue to line up new customers from home. You know, ask for referrals. Have someone put out door hangers in a targeted neighborhood. Do the things that grow your customer base. That's where the money is made, not in doing the actual work. Now, this doesn't, I'm not diminishing the value of somebody who does the work well. You need that. But there are a whole lot of people who can do the work well who do not have the ability to go out here and sell the services. Look for those people. Include those people in what you're doing. And you can continue to run this business, even through your wife's pregnancy. Sounds like a great thing you've got going. I commend you on getting this far with it. Well, yes, we're taking care of business, but we're out of time. 48 minutes a week we take to look at the value of our work and how to shape our work into being something that is a significant part of our lives. Not the only thing, but a significant part. Well, I trust that you're enjoying the new year, that you're having a great time as you continue to find or create work that is meaningful, fulfilling, purposeful, And profitable. We don't need to be ashamed about throwing that part in there. We want to make it profitable. I know you're doing that as well. Have a great week.